John 14, 1 through 6. Let's read this together in unison. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to Myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to Him, Lord, we do not know where You are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. Please join me in prayer this morning. Father, we are indeed delighted to be here together opening Your Word. And we're so grateful that we have this Scripture. We have this precious book, the Word of God. And in it, we are reading this morning of the account of Christ as He encourages the hearts of His disciples and how precious it is to us to hear Christ comfort His people and to encourage them in the truth and to point them to trust in Himself. Father, would You do the same to us through the Holy Spirit? The Spirit of Christ within us speaks to us His words and reveals to us His glory. Would You do that, Father, through the Spirit of Christ as we walk through this text together? Would You convict us and comfort us and cause us to rejoice in the Gospel? We pray these things in the name of Jesus and for His glory. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Being Palm Sunday this morning, I really wanted to turn to a text of Scripture that put before us the incarnation of Christ, the eternal Son of God become man, and here we get to see Him interacting with His disciples in His humility, in His gracious, loving way of ministering to them in truth. And so it's a joy to be able to share this Gospel text with you this morning. And I have to tell you, this is probably one of my most favorite. Can you have something that is most favorite and more favorite and one of favorites? Uh, this is one of my most favorite texts from which to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ this morning. This chapter opens with Jesus encouraging His disciples with a stirring word of exhortation. You see how this passage opens? Jesus says to His disciples, let not your heart be troubled. Believe. That's His word to us today. Believe. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. Now I want to say right at the outset, and we'll talk more about this later, when we in 21st century America think of the word believe, we usually think of that word in terms of something that is true versus something that isn't true in terms of is it fact or is it not? I believe that's fact. And we're just simply intellectually acknowledging the reality of something. But when Jesus talks about the word believe here, that's not what He's talking about. That's just the first step of what He's talking about. He is ultimately talking about 
trust, absolute dependence upon himself. Absolute reliance for life and breath and everything and eternal salvation. You don't, you're just not believing that, that, that Jesus existed as if giving mental acknowledgement to that fact. That's undisputable. But we're depending on Him for something. That's the idea. And so in order for this text to be particularly clear and impactful for us, we need to understand what the disciples were going through, what circumstances precipitated Jesus' exhortation to them, let not your heart be troubled, but trust me. Trust in me. So let me tell you about that. Jesus had been telling them over the course of several months now that He was on the Father's mission to deal with human sin. That's why Jesus came, right? To deal with human sin, with the problem of sin, by going to the city of Jerusalem and there to willingly offer Himself to the religious leaders to suffer, to be beaten, and at the hands of the Romans to be crucified and to die and to be buried and then to rise again. But up to this point, the disciples had not been on board with that mission. They had something entirely different in mind that they had expected Jesus to come and do. They had a different idea about Jesus' earthly mission. The disciples had expected Jesus to rise up like many other false messiahs had attempted to do and conquer Rome, overthrow the Roman Empire, set up the glorious throne of the Messianic era for Israel and allow every Hebrew follower of His to enjoy all the benefits of His earthly reign. They wanted that. That's what they were expecting. And so they thought that they would be Jesus' cabinet, as it were. His right-hand men in this massive Roman takeover. But that was not the mission of Jesus' first coming, was it? And that was entirely unexpected to the disciples until they understood. And coming up to, that, to the time of the text, Jesus had made clear to the disciples that His hour had arrived. This is a major theme in the, in, the, in the Gospel of John. The hour of Christ refers to His final moments before His death and then His burial and resurrection. That was His hour. Suffering. His passion. That's what we call it Passion Week. This was the hour of Christ. It was here. His Father had perfectly planned this hour. Nothing could happen to Christ before He were to come to this hour. But they didn't want to hear that. The disciples did not want to hear that Jesus' time to suffer and be crucified and die was here. And on top of all of that, Jesus had begun to tell His disciples that He was leaving them. As His death would come, He would then rise and leave them Physically, he would leave his disciples physically, even though he would promise to send another helper, the Holy Spirit, his own spirit, 
to be with them and to fill them and empower them and to help them. Jesus still was indeed physically leaving his disciples. And so no majestic earthly kingdom for them at present that disturbed the disciples. No more present Jesus physically. This was more than they wanted to bear. The disciples did not yet understand all that Jesus was doing and had planned. All they knew was Jesus was leaving. They didn't know where he was going. They didn't know how to follow him. And actually, at the end of chapter 13, he just told them, where I am going now, you can't follow me. You can't follow me right now. That was devastating for them to hear. Just disrupted their entire expectation. And this is the reason they were troubled. They were filled with a sense of distress, anxiety, perplexity, agitation, even fear, dread. They dreaded being separated from the physical presence of Christ. They were anxious and agitated and not knowing how they could be with Him again. So what does Jesus say? Speaking gently to them as if with as if with his precious and fearful children. He says, trust me. I want you to trust me. Trust me. Don't don't be agitated. Don't be distressed about this. Keep on trusting God and keep on trusting me. This is something that Jesus is telling them to do perpetually. Believe. Trust. Believe in me. Jesus was showing them, ultimately, the way to eternal salvation and security. That's what they needed. They needed to know that they would be secure in Christ. Now, you and I have much in common with those disciples. And of course, that's why we have these words here for us. Think about it this way. Let me me apply that separation in this way. Because of our sin, we have been separated from God. Have we not? Human separation from God began with the first human being. We'll talk about that more later. The first sinners. Their first sin. And it continues today because we are all born sinful by nature. (coughs) And we continue to sin by our own choice. And God has told mankind plainly in His Word, the person who sins will die because of their sin. And that death that God promised to sinners as a result of their sin would not only include physical death, not only spiritual death, but eternal death. Which is what? Eternal separation from the love of God and the eternal Punishment in the holy and righteous wrath of God, which is a just thing for God to do. And we have no recourse in ourselves to be reunited with God and once again enjoy eternal love. But that is the greatest question we could ever ask. How can I be reunited with God? 
So when we think about the day of our passage from time into eternity, we may, you may, be stricken, (coughs) and rightly so, with a sense of agitation. Have you ever thought about that day when you will walk through the door that escorts you into eternity? And has, has that ever put a sense of fear in your heart? You've never been there before. Do you know that you will be with Jesus? And it should give us a sense of fear. Death is a fearful thing. It is the judgment for sin. Jesus told us that. But here's what we need to know. Jesus gives us the way to understand that we can be at peace to know that we are going to be reunited with Him. I don't want you to suffer eternally under the just judgment and the condemnation and the punishment of Jesus Christ who is good and holy and a judge. I don't want that for you. I don't want that for myself. Do you want that? Are you concerned about that? Does that concern you? Do you long to be with God the Father forever and enjoy the blessings of His eternal presence? You want that, don't you? Don't you long to see Jesus' face, to see Him and to know Him as your eternal shepherd and king? You want that, don't you? I have to tell you, if you don't desire that, those precious and priceless and eternal delights, then May the Lord awaken your heart to long for what is valuable. There's nothing greater than to want to be with Jesus. To be with Him physically, eternally. But to what shall we turn to know how we may be with Christ forever in heaven rather than spend eternity away from His love in hell? This is where Jesus wrote these words where they come into our hearts and our ears and must affect us. In the wake of His being physically separated, He told His disciples, we're not always going to be separated. Trust Me. Believe in Me. That's the answer to a troubled heart at the separation that exists between us and Christ. What can reunite us? The work of Jesus Christ. How can that be applied to us? trust Him. That's it. That's all Jesus says. Believe in Me. That's the, end of the, that's the end of the imperative. Trust Jesus. So the main idea that I have for us this morning is simply this. Trust in Jesus Christ alone for your eternal salvation and security. Trust in Jesus Christ alone. It's only trust. And it's Christ alone that saves. And that's a work of His grace. Now, here's the question I want us to ask as we come into this text. Because what we're going to do, what Jesus is going to do in this text, is fill out exactly what it means to believe in Him. To trust in Him. Well, how do we trust in Jesus? That's the question you should have in your mind. How do I trust in Jesus for my eternal salvation and security. Number one this morning, 
trust in Jesus' preparations. That's the first thing. That's what saving faith looks like. Trust in Jesus' preparations. Verse 2 says, Jesus is talking to His disciples. He says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Let me read the verse again. Listen very carefully. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? First of all, I want you to understand Jesus' illustration here. It should, it should give you a question to say, well, why is Jesus all of a sudden talking about things in terms of Father's house and preparing a place and rooms and so on? Well, there's a, there is a cultural illustration that Jesus is using in this text. Now, back in Jesus' day, marriages happened quite a bit differently than they happen now. First of all, they were most often arranged, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. They were arranged marriages. And when a groom would go and receive the bride that was promised to him and him to her, he would, he would go to the house of the, of, the, of the bride and then bring her back with him with a wedding party, as it were, to go and live on his father's estate. He would have already added additional rooms onto his father's house. I imagine in my mind a massive, this is probably not the way it was, but this is just what I imagine, is a, a massive sort of horseshoe-shaped house with a common courtyard in the middle. And if you had many sons, then you would have many rooms added onto this house estate and those men would bring their wives to live in the father's house. And certainly, the more sons you had, the larger your family would be, and probably the more wealthy you would be as a landowner and, a, and an agricultural person. And so that's what Jesus is pulling on. Now let's get the connection. Well, the father's house is, he's referring to God the Father, and he's referring to heaven, the place of God's special presence, the place where we read about in the Bible that God exists as the triune holy God where He is eternally worshipped by all who would worship Him, angels and so on. The Son is the groom. The eternal Son of God become man. Jesus Christ. He's the groom who came to earth to receive what? His bride. Who is His bride? His bride is the church. Those who would believe in Him. His people. In the Old Testament, God called Israel His wife. And in the New Testament, Jesus calls the church, made up of Jews and Gentiles, as His bride. The Father's house, heaven, the very presence of God. Now, do you see the picture? In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Now, before we look at Jesus' preparations to make a place for us, I just want you to understand, and we can grasp a little bit here, the amazement of Jesus' declaration that there is room for us in the Father's house. A place. 
in my Father's house are many rooms. I go to prepare a place for you there in the house of the Father. This is really unimaginable. Many rooms for sinners like the disciples and like you and like me in the Father's house? That God would do this great thing. That Jesus, the groom, would come and receive those who trust in Him as His bride and live forever together in the presence of the Father. This is an amazing act of God's mercy and grace and kindness. Again, we referred to it in the introduction. The first human beings, Adam and Eve, were created for the Father's house, weren't they? They were cre- Every day, they lived in the Garden of Eden. God, the Son, in human form came, or in some form, not human form yet, but in form came and walked with them. Genesis says, and talked with them, they enjoyed the special presence of God. That's the essence of the Father's house, isn't it? Being in the place where God loves us fully and immediately and generously. The Father's house. They were made for that house. Human beings, Adam and Eve, were made for the presence of God. This was to be our greatest delight. God made us to exist with Him and to enjoy all the splendor of His glory and majesty forever. But, Adam and Eve, as representatives for the entire human race, chose something else, didn't they? They chose to worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator. We in Adam have all said, God I want what you've made, and I want to be king of what you made, and I want you out of this deal. You can't tell me what to do. I want to live on my own will. That's what Adam and Eve did. They doubted the Word of God. They doubted the goodness of the Father. They doubted the absolute veracity of His Word and chose to live as their own king on the world that God had made for them with all of its generosity. They were defiant. And consequently, they were removed from the Father's house, weren't they? In the beginning, they were escorted out of the Garden of Eden. They were separated from the immediate presence of God, sent from the Garden of Eden, just as God had promised. God promised this. He said, the day that you eat and disregard my authority over you, my good, generous, loving authority over you, you will die. You can't live independently of me. But Adam and Eve chose that anyway. And we with them. But again, God was so merciful and gracious to Adam and Eve. Though they died spiritually and were separated from God's special presence and would eventually die physically, God did not immediately send them into His eternal wrath. Eternal death. He didn't do that. He could have, right? That would have been just. They blatantly, knowingly violated His will and His goodness for them. Instead, God promised to send a Savior who would destroy the power of Satan, 
who would destroy the power of sin in them, who would destroy the power of death. God promised that right in the beginning. And ultimately, He promised to bring sinners like Adam and Eve back into His loving presence. And on that day, God promised a great rescue and a great return to His presence, didn't He? And He began to show how He would accomplish that rescue and return by killing an animal instead of killing Adam and Eve and clothing Adam and Eve in the animal of that in the skin of that animal. And since the day of Adam and Eve's rebellion against God and their fall into corruption and death, every other human being has been born into the world, sinful, spiritually dead to God, physically moving toward death, and will be forever separated from God in eternal death if they are not rescued by the grace of God and returned to the presence of God in the Father's house. Again, God made it very clear from the very beginning The just sentence that human sin deserves is what? Death. And we've seen it with Adam and Eve. And we see it all around us today. So then how can Jesus say to dying sinners who are separated from the Father, in my Father's house, there's room for you. You're going to come back in to this fully. I have a place prepared for you. How can Jesus say that? What an amazing thing. Well, to make sense of that then, you must be very clear about how there is room for sinners in the Father's house. How can sinners like us have a place in the Father's house? Jesus says, if it were not so, if what were not so, that there are many rooms there, If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? The presence of many rooms is dependent upon Jesus going to prepare a place. It's logically connected to the certainty. His preparations are logically connected to the certainty of there being many rooms in the Father's house. In fact, we can say it this way. We may say, that there are rooms in the Father's house for sinners like me, like you, just like His disciples, because Jesus prepares those places for us. He prepares the place. And the only way sinners like you and me can have a place in the presence of the Father forever is if Jesus prepares that place for us. A place for us in the Father's house is entirely dependent upon Jesus' preparations. Now, I've said the same thing about four or five times, right? I hope that's clear to you. So then what are Jesus' preparations? That's the next question, right? Now, we think about houses and preparations, and I'm sure you've heard me say this before, but it's kind of a funny thing that comes to my mind. Jesus going to heaven and preparing a place for us. What does that mean? Is it that He gets on tool bags fills his pouch with nails and a hammer and gets boards together and materials construction and, and starts building on to some structure in heaven. Is that his preparations? No, that, those aren't his preparations, are they? We can answer what Jesus' preparations are by knowing where Jesus was going immediately and what he was doing. Jesus 
said, I go. Right now, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And here's the point. He was going to die having lived a sinless life. And He was going to rise having died a substitutionary death. And He was going to ascend having risen from the dead. That's what He was going to do. You see, Jesus came to earth and lived under God's law just the way Adam and Eve were supposed to, just the way you and I were supposed to in order to receive and earn eternal life. And we failed to do so. We earned death, but Jesus came and lived under that law of God perfectly, sinlessly. And He earned life. But do you know what else He earned by His sinless life? Not only did He earn eternal life, He also earned the right to die in the place of sinners. What do you mean? Well, Jesus being sinless could take on the sin of sinners. If He was sinful Himself, He would have to die for His own sin. But being sinless, the sinless Lamb of God, He could take the sin of others upon Himself and die on the cross under the wrath of God. Do you understand what is about the cross? What, what the implications of the cross are? The cross is Jesus, the sinless Lamb, being credited the guilt of those who would trust in Him. The Father spiritually, amazingly, miraculously took the sin of all who would trust Him and transferred it to, to the sinless Lamb of God, the Son. And then God the Father pours out the eternal wrath of hell upon His infinitely worthy Son. And God was satisfied with that. God dealt with sin. God dealt with guilt. God, God fully, fully satisfied His wrath as He poured out His wrath against sin on His Son. Jesus came to die. He was going to die as the sinless one so that sinners could be guilt-free and forgiven of death. That's what the cross is. And we know God was satisfied with His outpouring of wrath upon the Son for our sins on the cross because then He raised Jesus. Jesus completely paid the death that sinners deserve. And so the Father raised Him. Satisfied with all that He did. He rose from the dead. And being risen from the dead, Jesus, Jesus ascended to heaven as King of kings and Lord of lords to reign over His church and send His Spirit to live in all who trust in Him so that He would keep them from the evil one. That He would keep them from being destroyed by darkness and sin. And that He would per perfect them and prepare them to do what? To enter the Father's house. See, it wasn't, it, wasn't a, it wasn't that Jesus needed to build something. We were the ones who needed to be prepared for the Father's house. The place was making us sinful people pure and holy. The place that Jesus prepared was, was making the Father's wrath satisfied at the cross. That made room for us. That made room for sinners. 
Jesus is the one whom God promised would destroy the works of Satan and sin and death, just like we talked about in the garden. And Jesus is the one who, who God prefigured as He killed the animal in the place of Adam and even clothed them with His righteousness. See, that's, that's what happens through Jesus' preparations. To enter the Father's house, you must be sinless. Where are you going to get that righteousness? From Christ alone. God will credit it to you. To enter the Father's house, you must be atoned for. How are you going to get your sins atoned for? Christ alone. The cross atones for sin. You, to enter the Father's house, you must, be, you must be made alive spiritually. Only Jesus can do that through the power of His resurrection. To enter the Father's house, you must be kept and matured and prepared for the Father's house. Only Jesus can do that from His place of lordship. It is only through the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Christ that sinners like the disciples, like me, like you, can be made right with God and welcomed into the Father's house, into His presence of love forever. But then you've got to ask this last question before we move on to the next point. What for whom does Jesus make these preparations? For whom? Is this just everybody? Whoever lived and ever will live? Is this, is this a big blanket over all of humanity? How can you know if Jesus has made these preparations for you? Well, it's not a big blanket, that's for sure. It's not everyone who's ever lived and ever will live. There's something specific. There's a condition upon who has a room, a place prepared for them. How can you know if Jesus has prepared a place for you? Do you know? How can you know if there's room in the Father's house? Jesus answered this question in verse 1 by telling His disciples how to respond to these things that He was telling them. What did He say? Believe. Trust Me. Trust in Me. Depend upon My preparations and My preparations alone. Trust My preparations. Trust Me. Trust My life to make you righteous Trust my death to atone for you. Trust my resurrection to make you alive. Trust my ascension to keep you and to prepare you for the Father's house. Trust me. Trust only in me. And Jesus is promising to those who trust in Him alone that there is a place prepared for them in the Father's house. You see, trusting in Jesus means turning away and letting go of what is killing you and what Jesus died to rescue you from, which is what? Sin. Trusting in Jesus means turning away from trying to make it on your own into the Father's house. Are you trying to make it on your own in the Father's house? To somehow be good enough? Are you trying? You know what, dear one? Jesus made all the preparations necessary. You don't have to help Him. In fact, if you try to, you won't make it. It's Christ's preparations alone. He says, believe in me. Trust me. Turn away from trying to help Jesus with his preparations. Totally rest in what he did for you. Totally receive him as son of God and savior of sinners and Lord of his people. 
So have you begun to trust in Jesus' preparations as I have just described to you, as Jesus is describing here? I go to prepare a place for you. If you have, that you have Jesus' delightful promise that there's room for you, that he has prepared a place for you, what grace that is, what joy that is, what hope is before you. This is what you were made for, to live with Christ in the Father's house. But if you have not yet begun to trust in Jesus like this, I compel you today, by the authority of Jesus in this text, turn from your sin, turn from yourself, and trust in Jesus alone, once and for all. I want you to be in the Father's house with me, with us, with Jesus forever. How else does Jesus teach us to trust in Him? Number two this morning, trust in Jesus' promises. So first, trust in Jesus' preparation, but also trust in Jesus' promises. Look what He says in verse 3. And He says, if I go and prepare a place for you, promise number one, I will come again. And promise number two, I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Oh, this is such good news. These promises of Christ, precious, exceedingly great, glorious promises. Look at the basis of Jesus' promises first. He says, if I go and prepare a place for you. That's the basis of his promise. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come for you. Jesus would never bring sinners into his Father's house without first making those sinners right with his Father by his life and death and resurrection and ascension. And preparing those sinners for his Father's house by purifying and perfecting them is how he can fulfill his promises. The work of Jesus Christ, the work of Jesus Christ is always the basis of Jesus' promises. Did you hear that? That's so important for us to know. God doesn't keep His promises to us based on our performance or how good of a day we've had or how good we feel or bad we feel or any of that or the trials we find ourselves in. He promises His promises to us and keeps His promises based on what? His work. His own doing. His own preparations. And because His work is sure, His promises are sure. But secondly then, that's, that's, a, that's the basis of Jesus' promises. Second, look at, look at the statement of Jesus' promises here. I will come again. And this statement here, I will come again, is ultimately referring to the visible, real, physical, bodily return of Jesus Christ. This is going to be absolutely wonderful and amazing. Can I read some texts with you? Let's, let's read some scripture about this wonderful second coming. First, and I'm just going to go in order through three different texts in the New Testament. Turn first with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 15. And I just want to look at the last nine verses, verse 50 through 58. 1 Corinthians 15. This is what Jesus is talking about. When he says, 
I will come again. I will come again. It's an amazing promise. He will. He will come again. I will do this, Jesus says. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. Paul writes of this promise of Christ, and he says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We'll not all sleep. In other words, we're not all going to die. But we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on, the, put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Did you notice the coming of Christ when the trumpet will sound? Those who are dead in Christ will shoot up through the graves. Those who are alive in Christ will follow closely behind. And all will be absolutely changed into immortal bodies that can live forever in the Father's house. That's coming. Jesus promised it. Turn to second, Turn to third, <coughs> First Thessalonians 4. <coughs> Excuse me. First Thessalonians 4, verse 13 through 18. <clears throat> but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, about those who have died in Christ, that you may not grieve when that happens, as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. What? What do you declare by a word from the Lord? That we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. 1 John chapter 3. Verse 1 through 3. 1 John 3, 1 through 3. 
see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. What else can I say? This is the coming of the Lord. This is entering into the Father's house. When Christ returns, He will complete the salvation that He has begun in all who have placed their faith in Him alone. And the grand finale of this return is that next promise. I will take you to Myself so that where I am, you may be also. Dear friends, that is the essence of heaven. To be with Jesus. To see Jesus. To hear Jesus' voice in your ears. Like, like John talked about in his letter, chapter 1, the very beginning. To see Him, to hear His voice, to touch Him, to worship Him, to sing to Him, to thank Him, to praise Him for all that He's done, to eat with Him. To know the delight of Him. To be served by Him. Remember? He said He would clothe Himself and serve His own in heaven. And to serve Him. To work for Him in heaven. To reign with Him. To enjoy all the Father's love in the Father's house with Jesus. That's heaven. That is the Father's house. That is what Jesus promises to all who trust in His preparations and His promises. See, trusting in Jesus, and here's a wonderful thing to consider, in your own security and salvation, or in salvation for you for the, for the, for the very beginning of it. Trusting in Jesus means not only trusting in His preparations, which you know what they are now, but also, it means trusting in Jesus' promises. Trusting that, that He will personally come and get you and bring you to heaven and fulfill all that He promised. That, that's part of self. That is sometimes what even our children need to hear when they know the gospel and they believe it, but they ask you, well, how do I know are you trusting Jesus' promises to you as you trust in His preparations? That is, that's part of saving faith. Resting in the unwavering promises of Christ. Trusting in Jesus' promise that His preparations are sufficient to bring you into the Father's house. Trusting in Jesus' promises that He will physically and powerfully come back and bring you up out of your grave and out of physical death and 
bring together your living spirit and your new perfected immortal body and fit you perfectly for living with Him in, in His glory forever. It means opening up your Bible and seeing these exceeding great and precious promises and hiding them in your heart and putting all your hope in His promises to you. That's trusting in Jesus. Jesus promised, I will come again. I will take you to Myself. And trusting in Jesus' promises is security indeed. But for whom will Jesus come again and take them to be where He is? For whom? Who are these promises for? How can you know if Jesus' promises are for you? Here it is again. Those who trust in Him alone. His preparations. His promises will be returned for by Jesus personally and taken to be where He is. So are you? Are you trusting in Jesus' preparations and His promises alone? then you are safe if you are. If you've not yet come to the place of settled saving faith in Christ alone, then I exhort you to no longer trust in yourself or anything else, but receive Christ for all that He is and rest in Him alone. Rest. Rest in Him today. Finally, how else does Jesus teach us to trust in Him? Trust in Jesus' preparations? Yes. Trust in His promises? Yes. But then last, trust in His person. Trust in Him. Just trust Him. Verse 4-6, through six, And you know the way to where I am going, Jesus says. You know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to Him, Lord, we do not know the way to where You are going. How can we know the way? We do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now this is an amazing three verses indeed. Where is heaven exactly? Anybody know? <laughs> where is it? You can't point to it. Not really. Is there a road to heaven? Is there a stairway, an elevator, um, an airplane, a rocket, a tower? How about kids? How about a secret wardrobe with a door in it? Thomas vocalized how finite people like us often feel. When we think about our physical proximity from the physical Christ and the great chasm that exists between heaven and earth, time and eternity, we don't know where you are going, Jesus. How can we know the way to you, Jesus? This is, this is what makes our Futile thinking that we can get there on our own by somehow being a little bit good or helping Jesus, it makes it look ridiculous. How do you get there? We don't even know the way. Where, where is it? How are you going to get yourself up out of the grave? 
There is no way to physically point out the Father's house on a map. There is no way to physically secure the best route to the Father's house on that map. There's nothing that we can do to bring ourselves something tangible that will satisfy all of our empirical cravings for earthly security and physical comfort and control when it comes to entering into eternal life and into the blessed presence of God and into the Father's house with Jesus. What then shall we do? Do you feel this tension with me? It's astounding to consider how absurd it is that there's any physical human way there. There's only one thing to do. You must completely trust the person of Jesus Christ to do it all for you. That's it. It's Jesus. And He is completely trustworthy because He is the way. See, the way isn't an, it's not a paved road. The way is a person. He's the, he will bring you there. His preparations are the way. And He is the truth. He is, he's telling you the truth about this. His promises to you are the truth. And He is the life. He will, he will give to you as God incarnate. He will give to you His very own life as He resurrects your spirit, puts His spirit within you, and one day resurrects your body and He will sustain you immortally to be with Him in the Father's house. It is all of Christ from beginning to end. You trust Him. And He holds you fast. And actually, He is your only option because no one comes to the Father except through Him, right? He's the only option. So many people balk at this claim from Christ. Do you believe Jesus is the truth here? He says He's the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I say to you, no one comes to the Father except through me. That means there is no other way. You are not the way. Nothing about you is the way. Or me. Your church isn't the way. Your family isn't the way. Buddha isn't the way. Muhammad isn't the way. Only Jesus is the way. That's what Jesus said. Do you believe he speaks the truth? Are you prepared to place your life on his life? 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6 says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. One. One mediator. Who, will, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Acts 4, 12. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name. It's interesting as well because Jesus doesn't go by other names and other religions. He doesn't have other robes by which He comes to people. There's only one name by which, under heaven, among men, by which we must be saved. One Savior, one name. And that's why we have to go and tell everyone that name and about His preparations and His promises and His person. And so in closing this morning, I urge you 
to trust in the preparations, the promises, the person of Jesus Christ for your eternal salvation and security. If you have not yet trusted in Jesus as I have described in these verses, you must do so today. You do not know. You do not know when death may separate you from Jesus and the Father's house forever. Trust in Jesus today. Christ commands you to trust in Him. He's not asking. He says it. Believe in Me. So if you would like to learn more about this salvation in Jesus Christ, would you please come talk with me after the service? I'll be waiting in the foyer. I'd love to share more of Christ's words with you if that's what you'd like. If you'd like to trust Jesus Christ right now, do so. And if by the grace of God you already have been drawn by the Holy Spirit and compelled by the words of Christ to trust in His preparations and His promises and His person, then let not your heart be troubled. Take heart. Rejoice. Be at peace in your soul. It is well with your soul. And there's room in the Father's house for you. There's a place prepared for you. Jesus will come again. And then He will take you to Himself so that you may be where He is. Keep on trusting in Jesus, dear ones. Keep on trusting. No matter what, when you cannot make sense of the circumstances surrounding you, just like Jesus' first disciples, when you feel discouraged, when you feel defeated, when you feel despairing of life itself, when you feel dark and confused in your mind, when you feel dirty and guilty, when you feel deceived and betrayed, turn to Christ and keep trusting in Him relentlessly by His grace. Remember and rehearse in your mind, in your heart, in prayer, and in the Word, His preparations, His promises, His, the beauty of His person. Keep Him before your eyes and in your mind and your heart because Jesus' preparations will never fall short. Not ever. And His promises will never be left unfulfilled. Not one. And Jesus' person will never fail. So, Trust in Jesus Christ alone for your eternal salvation and security. Would you stand with me? Let's pray together. Our Father, we are so grateful for the person and work of Jesus Christ and the things that are yet ahead for those who trust in Him we have everything to live for. You are so kind, Father. Open our hearts to continually trust in Christ and rejoice in Him. Father, stir the, the folks that may be here today who have not yet trusted in Christ like Jesus taught. Convict them of their sin. Put a holy fear and dread in their hearts of eternity without you and let them run to Christ abandoning love for sin, abandoning trust in what they can do and trusting in Christ alone. For His glory we pray this. Amen.